Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I want to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. And I also want to thank you for partnering with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. There's always something new and exciting happening here at Ren, so please follow us on social media. You can find us by searching Renaissance Decatur. And you can also connect with us by visiting our website, rendecatur.org. Enjoy the podcast, and thank you so much for being a part of this community. So God bless you all. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the leaders here. And if you're new to Renaissance, one of the things that we just love to do every week is just study our Bibles. And, and typically around here, we just open a, a, a book of the Bible and we work our way through it, not in its entirety in the same day, but over time, we'll work our way through an entire book of the Bible. Uh, we just like to do that. It helps us understand context a little bit better, helps us understand what the Bible is actually saying to us. Now, that being said, we're continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible with you, you could turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's no shame here. <laughs> there's a, a hardback black Bible underneath the seat around you, and you're welcome to use that one. Or like I've mentioned many times before, I typically do most of my Bible reading on my smartphone these days. So if you don't have the Bible app, you could download the Bible app and follow along there if you want. Um, as we turn to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to do just a little bit of background just to catch us up to, to really what is necessary for us to understand before we move forward. Um, this is a reminder for many of you. This will be brand new if, if you're visiting with us. But, but Corinth is a city that was um, in the ancient world, if you will, that was known for its debaucherous living, its wicked living, its crazy living. They had bumper stickers all back in the day called what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Right? That was that city. It was very cosmopolitan, which meant it had a lot of people from all different parts of the world there. It was a, a, a port city. A lot of trade came through there. And through the trade came a lot of money, which brought all the people in there. And it was also known for its, its worship of what the Bible would call pagan gods or false gods. There were temples set up all through the city where people could go worship Artemis or Zeus, or I'm making up some of these gods now, I don't know, but you know, all the different gods that we read about in history classes, they were real gods to them, and they would go worship them in all of these different locations. And in the middle of all of that, the gospel of Jesus, so the truth and love of Jesus, salvation through Christ alone, by faith, and all that stuff, comes through a man named Paul the Apostle into Corinth, and people receive the message of G Jesus by faith and become Christians. Woo! Yay! Yes, we, we celebrate that. And in the middle of that sort of dark and debaucherous and sin-filled city, this little church is born. And Paul shepherds that church, young Christians, people of other faiths coming to know Jesus as their savior, Jewish people living in the city, renouncing their Judaism to follow after Christianity. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And Paul shepherds those people for a few years and then God calls him to another city. So he packs up his donkey or Escalade, I can't remember which, and moves to a different city to plant another church so that people could become Christians there. And then another church so that people could become Christians there. Now, while he's away, other pastors come, come in and sort of lead the church and teach the church, encourage the church. But at some point while Paul, Paul is away, maybe four or five years after he'd planted the church, word comes to him in Ephesus, a little city in Turkey, where he hears that the Corinthians are no longer acting like Christians. 
They're sort of acting like they used to act before the gospel came and changed their lives. He hears many things about their drunkenness, their sexual immorality, their unwillingness to judge correctly in the church. There are lawsuits amongst, amongst all of the different believers. They're truly acting like everyone else around them. They're not looking different. They're not acting different. They're not acting and sounding and looking and thinking like Christians. So Paul writes them a letter. That letter we call 1 Corinthians. So for the first half or so of this letter, the first six chapters, if you will, Paul's been addressing some of the things that he's been hearing about them. He's been calling them out for some of their behavior. And I think that's a good thing, yes? <laughs> I'm just looking for someone to nod their head and I'm gonna dive in. Is it okay to get called on your behavior? I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm desperate to be called on my behavior. I, I, I mean, I say that honestly. If ever I was acting a fool and I have a position of authority here as a pastor in the church, if ever I was truly out of line, it is, it is my desperate plea that the Lord would bring someone to me and lovingly correct me and rebuke me. That's what you would want, yes? Everyone's like, this feels like a setup, brother. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> here we go. No, that, that's what's happening. So for the first six chapters, he just says, listen, about that, that guy that's sleeping with his stepmom in the church and bragging about it, yeah, deal with it. You have permission, kick him out of the church so that he, his soul might be saved and he might find his way back into fellowship, right? You remember that study? No, it's in there. You can read that. There's all kinds of issues, again, about them suing one another, lawsuits. He says, Why don't you, wouldn't you rather just be abused by someone else for Christ's sake than to drag your brother before the magistrates, the, 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 the pagan, if you will, magistrates, the unbelieving judges? Why would you do those types of things? So he corrects their behavior the first six chapters. But here in chapter seven, something switches. Now he begins to answer questions that they had sent him. So Paul, when he was in Ephesus, we believe, he received letters from them asking questions. So Paul, while you're over there, we have this issue about this. What do you think about this? How should we respond to this? Or what do you think about this issue? And so for the rest of the book, Paul is actually answering the questions that they have. This is the uh, ask the pastor anything sort of segment of the, the letter, if you will. And what's crazy about that is they waste no time than getting into real weighty matters, the matters of marriage and sex. Somebody asked me in the first service, Jeff, were you in the sun yesterday and got sunburned or are you just blushing? <laughs> I don't know which brother, I don't know. I was out in the sun and my daughter says I look like a raccoon and a fool as if, <laughs> as if those are mutually exclusive of one another. It's the people you love the most who remind you six hours later that you should have put on sunblock. <laughs> Anyways, so um, Paul wants to address some concerns they have. He wants to answer some questions that they have. And I wanna read just verses one through seven today and we'll dive into uh, the first part of the response to their first question. You can follow along on the screens here, starting here in verse one. He says, now, concerning the matters about which you wrote me, Okay, here's the questions you have. It is good, he says, for a man to not to have sexual relations with a woman. Let me read that again because I stumbled over it. Concerning the matters about which you wrote me, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But, he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife 
her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not, he says, deprive one another, except, and he gives us a little exception, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again so that Satan or the devil may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse six, now as a concession, he says, not a command, I say this, I wish that all of you were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Whew, there's a lot of interesting things in there that we want to discuss. I think a lot of helpful things in there for us to understand. And I wanna pray for us that God might help us to understand some of this. So would you bow your heads with me? Father, we are thankful for Jesus. The first thing we should always do is to uh, be thankful for the gift of Jesus that you have given us. May we start our day in understanding just being thankful for Jesus, that because of Jesus, we can have relationship with you. We can come underneath the tutelage and the leadership of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives to us. And we can find meaning and purpose in Jesus for our lives. So we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, would you come and be a part of our day today? We've gathered here today not to just um, be with one another, but to be with you as well. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, you would open our minds, open our eyes, open our ears so that we could see you, that we could hear from you. And most importantly, God, I pray that our lives would be transformed by you. And we know over time, you love to just make us new again and again and again. So renew our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We don't have the questions that the Corinthian church had written Paul. We don't have them. All we have here in this first verse is his response to those questions. But may I remind you, there's a group of people in the church, the Christians in the church, because they're coming from a myriad and varied background, they have different views and different opinions as to what it looks like to live a holy, pious, and righteous relationship. In fact, many of those people who were worshiping pagan gods before Christ, they used to practice this thing we call asceticism, which just means this, that they would deny the flesh and the desires of the flesh in, a, in hopes to become more pious and holy. We call these people the Stoics or the ascetics. Basically, if it feels good, don't do it, they would say. And they had the little bumper stickers on their car. If it feels good, don't do it. But there's another group of people in Corinth, again, Corinth known for its debauchery and its kind of crazy living, they had a bumper sticker on their car that says, if it feels good, do it, right? These are the Epicureans. These are the people like, whatever it takes, more sex, more food, more sex, more food, over and over again. It's the hamster wheel of like just living in the moment. And it's those people who've become Christians, they're levying this question before Paul, asking what he thinks. The question we don't have, but his response is this. He says, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. We don't know the question, but it has something to do with that. Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? His response is yes. Now, just know this. This is not Paul's language. 
This appears to be a maxim or an understanding that the Corinthian church had, and they were using it to drive towards an ascetic or a, a willful desire to not act out in the flesh lifestyle. They're saying, now, Paul, you, you, you yourself, you're single, and you are constantly talking about sexual immorality, right? Et cetera, so how bad that is. So we're going to go out on a limb here and say, Paul, you'd probably think it's good that it's not okay for, it's, it's good to not have sex with a woman. Would you agree with that? And Paul simply just responds to the question. Yeah, it's good. And by good, he means this, not, it's not evil to not have sex with a woman. Now, let me go one step further. Everyone's like, what the heck is going on right now? All of this is held inside the biblical idea of what marriage looks like. See, Paul's coming from that perspective. He says, between a husband and a wife, is it, he says, is it not good that a person have sex with their wife? Or better yet, they might even be asking the question, is it, is it good to not get married at all? The question they might really be asking, is it sinful to get married? Is it wrong to get married? Is it wrong to live a celibate life? And Paul just responds to that. In fact, no, it's not wrong to live a celibate life. It's not bad to live a celibate life. But the issue the Corinthian church was driving at is they were using that argument in marriage to not have a marriage relationship, if you know what I'm saying. And Paul wants to address them in regards to that. Is it good? It is good for a man not to have relations with a woman, he would say. Paul says it is, in fact, desirable or it is to one's advantage to be celibate or single. It's not evil to try to get married. But this raises the question for us, if marriage is a sin or is, it, is celibacy better than marriage? Now, here's the crazy thing. I want to mention this before we move forward. We cannot make a doctrine about anything in the Bible based on one passage from the Bible. Would you agree with that? So this particular thing is talking about marriage but we cannot have our entire doctrine of marriage based on this one thing. Because Paul says, it's good to not get married. Hmm? Yet in Genesis chapter two, the Bible tells us that it is not good for a man to be alone and God gives him a helper and that helper is his wife. So wait, is it good or is it not good? My point in saying all of that is that we need to build our doctrine or our understanding of things, marriage, on the entirety of the Bible. The Bible actually is filled with passages about the Bible. I mentioned Genesis chapter two. It's not good that a man would be alone, that God would give him a helper. Then he goes on to say, go ahead and be fruitful and multiply, if you know what I'm saying there. You know what I'm saying? And then pay attention, stay with me now. These are all good things in Proverbs. It talks about marriage being a covenant between a husband and a wife. This is more than just a you'll do. This is a covenant that comes. You can read the Song of Solomon in your Old Testament. It is NC 17, right? It'll make you blush. If it doesn't make you blush, read it in front of your teenage daughter. It'll make you blush. It is about the husband and wife relationship. A Song of Solomon, write this down. Song of Solomon, read it. It'll make you blush. Marriage is talked about with Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, he talks about marriage and he talks about divorce. He even was asked the question by his disciples, hey, Jesus, uh, in the resurrection, will we be married? And he goes, no, we're gonna be like the angels. We neither marry or any of those things. So there's this idea of what marriage looks like. It's temporary, if at all here. We don't carry it into heaven with us. All that to say, there's a lot of stuff about marriage. And what you and I can do, what others can do, is make the mistake of taking one particular passage 
and making doctrine out of it. Is it okay to stay single? Sure, I guess, if you want to. But what they're driving at is something altogether different. We'll see that next. But he says in verse 2, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, then each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. This is oftentimes used an argument, as an argument for singles then to get married. You know, is it okay to be single? Well, sure. But because of sexual immorality, then everyone should have a spouse. But I think that falls flat for a couple reasons. The argument is because of sexual immorality, then go have a spouse. Here, here's a couple things that I think. Paul is not saying everyone should have a spouse. Here's the first reason. There is a verb to have a spouse or to get a spouse, to marry a spouse. And they use it all the time in the Bible. Paul uses it in the Bible, but he does not use it here. This is not a statement that says, because of sexual immorality, because of your desire to probably go feed your natural desires, you should have a spouse to avoid those things. That's not what he's saying. He could have said that, but he didn't. Secondly, Paul argues elsewhere that singleness is a good thing, and he doesn't want everyone to get married, so I don't think that's what he's saying here. And I'll confess this to you. The third reason why I don't think this is, be, this is what he's saying is like, because of sexual immorality, you should take a spouse. Because I'm married, I have a spouse. And I can tell you this, God is my witness. It does not lessen my desire for sexual immorality. <laughs> Welcome to Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who wants to be honest? I'll, I'll go first, I already did. But who says all of a sudden all of your desires and your lustful thoughts just evaporated when you said I do? No. What Paul's driving at when he says every man should have his wife, every woman should have her husband, that language is used all through the Greco-Roman world. It's speaking about physical intimacy. It's speaking about sex. And, and in the middle of that, he's driving back against the Corinthian ideal that somehow abstaining from these things in the marriage bedroom is somehow more holy than not. And he says, no. It's best that a husband and a wife have physical intimacy. Now, it's in this moment you're wondering, is he sunburned or is he blushing? <laughs> this, is, this is challenging. But if I can be honest with you, this is one of the things I love about Scripture. I did not grow up in the church. I was 26 years old before I became a Christian and well into my 30s before I really began to study and understand Scripture for myself. And in those first 26 to 30 years, I had no biblical understanding of what sex is. I had a worldly understanding of what sex is and how sex is to be used. But here we begin to understand that God has a purpose and a plan for sex. And it is inside of the marriage union between a husband and a wife. And we learn that sex is actually a good thing designed by God to be used that way. Is that okay to say? <laughs> yes, it's good. You're like, this church is... <laughs> Let's just say this. When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, remember the story, right? Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, 
And then he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. He, he like encourages the encounter of physical intimacy. He encourages it. And so when we read that, when he says, go be fruitful and multiply, we, we see at least one reason why um, sex is important to God. It's for procreation, right? That we could be fruitful and multiply. But we have to be honest, there's another reason behind it too. And we begin to understand it here. It, there's pleasure involved in it. I mean, God built it this way. He could have done it any way he wanted to. In fact, I heard a pastor recently say, when, when he gave us this union, this physical union, physical intimacy, he could have made it as bl uh, uh, bland and benign as a handshake. We go up and shake hands with our spouse and nine months later, we have a kid. <laughs> and praise the Lord, he didn't. <laughs> Otherwise, me, never mind. <laughs> He didn't. And inside of that, in, a, in holy matrimony, two people, a husband and a wife, united in, in matrimony under the guideship and lordship of Jesus, there's a level of pleasure that you cannot find anywhere. Anywhere. Paul knows this. He speaks from this experience. He, he knows this to be true. So that's why he pushes back against the Corinthians. He says, your desire to be in a relationship with your spouse and then to go, but, but Paul, again, you're single and you speak against sexual things all the time. Isn't it just better to not have sex at all? And he's like, mm -mm, not in the marriage contract, it's not. Like if you weren't married, then he would say, yes, yeah, stay as you are and that's fine, we'll get to that all next week. But within the confines of marriage in the bedroom of the, the marriage bedroom, he says, then you should be doing these things. Look what he says here in verse three. That the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I mean, there is um, a perversion of this, as you could certainly imagine of these two things. That some people who misunderstand the marriage relationship could take Paul's words out of context, look at their wife and say, excuse me, ma'am, um, you owe me something. Paul says, you, you, are, you owe me my conjugal rights. Oh, and by the way, I have authority over you. So 2 a.m., let's go. You know what I mean? <laughs> or whatever. But that's, that's not how this lays out because if you keep, keep reading, you hear the flip side of that. That husbands also are to give their conjugal rights to their, their wives. And, and they're not over their own authority of their own body, but they, their wives have authority over them as well. See, here, of all the arguments and criticisms, uh, uh, criticisms against Christianity, know this, the Christian faith should never be considered to be misogynistic. If there is a world religion out there who gives equal rights to both men and women, it is our faith in Christ, this, this Christian relationship. Other religions treat women differently, not this one. So if you ever hear that argument that uh, they're just a bunch of bigots, a bunch of women haters in the Christian faith, I'm like, you haven't read the words of Paul then, have you? In fact, I saw this very verse played out this morning as I saw a friend of mine who uh, has been letting his hair grow. 
It's been looking awesome. I, he's almost like into a ponytail, looks really great. And today I saw him, I said, wow, you got your hair cut. And he said, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> It is an example of a woman taking authority over her husband's body, yes? Yeah. I think another perversion comes out of all of this is when we stand in the position of said authority and we, we come from a, a vantage point of you owe me. We stand in the marriage contract and we say, you, you, I have rights to certain things. I demand my rights. And I think that would be the wrong position or posture to take. Rather than we should step into the marriage relationship and instead of demanding our rights, we should stand on the duties that God has given us. See, I have a duty to fulfill my wife and her needs. I have a duty to support my wife and her needs, not I demand things from her. You hear, you hear how this feels different? It's better that way, I promise you. We don't come into this relationship demanding things from someone else. In fact, if we look at marriage in the entirety of the Bible, there's one metaphor that, that the Bible likes to use more than any other, and it's the metaphor of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. Now, look at that relationship. And Paul picks up, on, picks up on that language in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself, gave himself up for her. See, in, in that understanding, the husband in the relationship is not demanding anything from his spouse, but is willing to give himself to her fully, completely, this is the posture of what can I do for you? How can I help you? That's the picture that Paul gives to husbands in Ephesians. It's the picture the Bible paints for us with Jesus serving the church. So this is, this is not to be misconstrued and abused to be um, used by a person trying to force women to submit. And likewise, women, it's not to be used by you to force us to submit by saying, well, you're under my authority. This is a mutually agreed upon willful submission to one another. Are we okay? I have the number of a good Christian counselor. If any of you folks would like to go see a Christian counselor after all of this. Um, this is a real thing. And, and I made mention of this earlier. I didn't grow up in the church. I have no understanding of this. I had no understanding going into my marriage what this looks like. But uh, praise God, over time, I, I understand this a whole lot better now. Um, another reason to continue to come to church um, a lot, because you'll learn something every week, I hope, that will make you a little better person. Again, the emphasis in marriage is more about submitting and coming to uh, fulfill the other, your duties to fulfill the other uh, person. So he says in verse 5, so don't deprive one another. So don't do that in a marriage relationship. Again, reminding you, the Corinthians are asking specific questions about a specific issue, and he's addressing that. We're looking to apply this to our lives, but that's what he's saying. Don't deprive one another, except, he says, maybe by way uh, of an agreement for a limited time that you devote yourself to prayer, maybe devote yourself to fasting, some of the other translations say, but then come back together again. So if you have this desire to live a... Uh, a celibate life, even though you're married, which he thinks is 
they don't go together. He says, that's fine. I could, I could concede to that argument. Um, if you're striving towards holiness and righteousness, if you want to you know, hold off on that for a while, while you seek prayer, while you seek fasting, while you seek what God wants for you, I'm down with all of that, he says. But both of you agree on it. It's for a limited time, and then you come back together. Are we good? Because if not, he said, Satan can tempt you. This is a thing. I mean, I won't, I won't mention any names, but I have counseled people who have had relations withheld from them, from their spouse. They argue, cause them to look outside of the marriage for that. You see, is that, do I need to say it the right way so you understand? I'm trying to like be real vague about it. If someone's withholding physical intimacy from their spouse, that, that other person went and found it somewhere else. And all of that comes on temptations from Satan. You've actually withheld something that, that God would want both of you to give each other. And because of that, a natural urge began to grow and bubble. And everyone knows what this looks like. Married people should know what this looks like. And then they went looking for it somewhere else because Satan came in and said, there's something better out there. See, the whole, the whole thing about physical intimacy and, and uh, you know, sex, if you will, it is designed by God to be used in a good and godly way. And what happens is when we don't do that, then Satan comes in and distorts it and twists it. And in, I don't know about you, but in our culture, it, it's a very big topic in the culture around us. In fact, some might even argue our culture is even saying, why even bother getting married? Just go do your thing. Just go do with whoever, whenever, whatever, and all that. And I'm, I'm like, that's, that's a perversion of what God has built for us or made for us that is good and godly. We take what is good and godly and make it ultimate, and we strive to find it alone. And God is saying, all of that should live inside of relationship with me and your spouse. He wants to say, if you want to pursue holiness through prayer, fine, just agree to come back together when you're done. And then he says, verse seven, he says, I wish all of you were as like, or as I myself am. Now, what is he saying here? I wish all of you were single. Paul, we believe, is single at the time of writing this. Although we do not believe Paul was always single. We believe Paul was married at some point. And we say that out of Acts 26, verse 10, when Paul mentions that he raises his hand in agreement as a vote or something against the Christian church, what he's intimating there is that he was part of a group called the Sanhedrin, and to be a part of the Sanhedrin, every male must be married. So Paul was married at some point, yet right here he's single. What happened to his wife? We do not know. It's possible when he became a Christian, <laughs> she's like, Paul, you're all, you've lost your marbles, brother. Like, uh-uh, I, I, I'm not gonna follow you into whatever crazy talk you're doing, this planting churches thing, this, you know, all that. He goes, she, she might've just said, I'm not going to follow you. She might have died, we don't know. And Paul says, listen, I wish all of you were like me in that regard. Maybe singleness is what he's talking about. But he says each person has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. I just, I lay emphasis into gift from God because that is the Greek words, that we get gifts of the spirit. It's the same thing, charismata. The gift of God that he's speaking about here is singleness, celibacy or singleness and marriage. And like all of the other gifts of God given to his people, none of them, hear me, none of them are greater than the other. 
<laughs> which flies in the face of most, of most charismatics and Pentecostals, Pentecostals <laughs> who like to elevate certain gifts like prophecy and tongues and, and all of those cool gifts and forget about gifts like hospitality <laughs> and service. These are spiritual gifts given by God himself. Some people are gifted singleness. Some people have been gifted marriage. I'm thankful that I've been gifted marriage. I took a, a call from someone this last week asking me on their behalf if they thought I had, that if they thought, if I thought, golly, it's going to be a long day, if I thought that they had been given the gift of singleness. They're a single person in the church. And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know how to answer that question. I, I don't know. I do know this. It could be. It's quite possible. Sometimes single people feel less than in the church. In fact, a lot of teachers use passages like this saying that every person should have a spouse, as I mentioned earlier. Every, and somehow, like, singles are just waiting to graduate to the next level of piety and holiness and finding a spouse. And if that's the case, if, if marriage is better than singleness, wait for it, then Jesus did it wrong. You hear that? That Jesus, our Lord and Savior, somehow missed that one and decided to stay single. There is no difference. There's no level one's greater than the other. Paul is just laying into this idea. Listen, you can get married if you want to, and we'll talk about this next week, but when you do, it's going to cost you some things. So it's best to stay single and, and just run your life for the Lord single. You'll get to do a whole lot more for God's kingdom than you will when you're married because you'll want to go do some stuff and your wife will go, uh-uh. We're not doing it today or vice versa. And that's a real thing. And I'm okay with that. I'm absolutely okay. I've had very long conversations with friends of mine who are single in the ministry and they, they rejoice in that, that God can use them to a greater capacity than their married counterparts. Either way is fine for me. What Paul's really driving home here and we'll get to this again next week. He says, if you're married, stay married. If you're not, don't strive to get married. Just Embrace the gift that God has given you. So, um, I want to close with all of this. In the middle of understanding whether we're called to be single or called to be married, um, unfortunately, singles get this idea that as they wait for marriage to come, that it's somehow okay to just go ahead and live as though you're married with other people, if you know what I mean. That's not the gift of singleness. <laughs> That's you not settling down and sleeping with a bunch of people. That's what that is. So the gift of singleness is a settled gift given to you by God as you wait on what God has for your life. It's not striving and straining after something and until you can find it, I'll do all of these things. That's not the gift of singleness. That's a perversion of what God would want for you. If you're called to be single, then settle in that. Let God lead you in everything. Okay, and for the married people, then we serve one another. I close with this. God is worthy of all of our lives, yes? Singles, marrieds, children, our sex lives. It seems so foreign to talk about that in the church. In fact, I wonder if people right now are thinking, why is he talking about this? Like, I didn't come to church to hear about intimacy. <laughs> Sorry. 
It's important to the Lord. It's super important. And I wish more people had a biblical understanding of what intimacy is, intimacy is supposed to look like and who it's supposed to be directed towards, etc. We need to remember that we live our lives for God. I mean, single or married or whatever, our, our lives are for him and for his glory. And we miss that a lot, especially in our culture here. We like to talk about us a lot. It's not for God, it's for us. In fact, if, if there's an argument amongst all my friends who, who don't want to become Christians, it's usually this. I don't want to be told what to do, Jeff. I mean, you submit to the Lord, you follow Jesus. I don't follow anyone. I do what I want to do, right? One of my good friends told me this not long ago. He says, Jeff, I'm going to live my life however I want. And right before I die, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. And I'm like, you're insane. <laughs> you're insane. How, how do you even know when that's going to come? Statistically speaking, there are people in this room who will not be here next year. It, it comes oftentimes, death does, quickly. We do not know. So to play that game, I'll live however I want and then become a Christian right before I go and sneak into heaven like you're stealing home or something. You know what I mean? It's, it doesn't work that way. And they've got the wrong idea what it means to follow and serve Jesus. Because to follow and serve Jesus means it's the better life for us. Why would you want to live your own way and then sneak into heaven? Why not live the life God has for you now and get into heaven? Is that right? So anyways, I just want to pray for us as we close and um, encourage you to come back. Next week, we'll talk more about this and um, pray that God help us understand. So let's pray. God, we thank you again for everything that you do for us and all of our time together. It not be wasted, I pray in Jesus' name that this would be all helpful to us in whatever way, God. I pray that even the Spirit of God could allow some of these things uh, spoken today to sort of uh, leapfrog over our intellect and just land in our hearts. Sometimes, Lord, we don't even need to understand things as long as it settles inside of our hearts. So God, I just pray that even though maybe we seem we feel confused. Maybe it didn't seem real clear what was happening here this morning. I just pray, Spirit of God, that you'd place something inside of our hearts that makes sense to us, that would cause us to live uh, differently, cause us to chase after the newness of life that you give us every day. God, we just thank you for everything that you do. We, we pray now as we go back into a time of worship, that we, we sing from a, a place of adoration, dedication, devotion to you, that our lives would be built upon the precepts of God alone, not our own desires. So God, make us a people who are willing to submit. And we would heed the call that you've given us in your son, Jesus, as you uh, woo us or draw us to yourself, that we would be people to respond in the affirmative and say, yes, God, we will follow you. God, we thank you for everything that you do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together, we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, please go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves him.